I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author Brian Alexander. His new book is The Hospital, Life, Death, and Dollars in a Small American Town. Brian Ohio's hospital is losing money, making it vulnerable to big health systems seeking domination. CEO Phil Ennen has been fighting to preserve its independence. Meanwhile, Brian, a town of 8,500 people in Ohio's northwest corner, is still trying to recover from the Great Recession. As local leaders struggle to address the town's problems and the hospital fights for its life amid a rapidly consolidating medical and hospital industry, a 39-year-old diabetic literally fights for his limbs and a 55-year-old contractor lies dying in the emergency room. With these and other stories, Brian Alexander strips away the wonkiness of policy to reveal America's struggle for health against a powerful system that's stacked against them, but yet so fragile it blows apart when the pandemic hit. Brian is a contributing writer to The Atlantic and has written for The New York Times, LA Times, Esquire, and more. Welcome to the show. Brian, nice to have you on today. Uh, Thank you for having me on. I appreciate your attention. Well, I really liked your book, and I read it really quickly, I have to admit, because I knew I was having you on the show today. I'm going to go back and, I think, reread it because there's so much in there. I mean, I think the one of the things I, I have to say just in the beginning that I really love about your book, you get into the politics, the sociology, the culture, but in the context of giving all these real life examples. You're talking about real people and case histories. And as a social worker who's done hospital social work all my life, boy, it really sort of like hit home. So that's my my intro. But um, this, what I mean, and now, as we said before the show, uh, we have COVID. So all of the things that you talk about in the book have been exposed in real time in this past year. Um, what it why did you decide actually on this hospital, this particular hospital? I know it's a small independent hospital in the middle of the country, but besides that. Well, uh, I had done a uh, story for The Atlantic on the struggle of rural hospitals, community hospitals to stay open. Um, it, it's there, there are a number of forces that are uh, mitigating toward them having to close their doors. And so there are about 600 or so hospitals at risk of closing in this country right now. Um, in the course of doing that story, I interviewed um, a guy named Phil Ennen, who was the CEO of a CHWC, the hospital in Bryan, Ohio. Uh, the story came out. Uh, Phil called me up after uh, the story came out, and he said, you know, you ought to come to our town and have a look at how we are trying to stay open. So I thought, well, okay, so I did. Um, I flew into Detroit and then spent the two hours driving to Bryan, spent four days uh, talking to local people, talking to patients, talking to civic leaders. Um, and I, I realized that if I could get my arms around this one small place and one small hospital, there were things to be said, not only about American healthcare in general, but about American inequality and about the American economy and how the American economy is literally killing people. Uh, And so I said, in order to do that, I'm going to need really good access. So Phil and I sat down and, and to his credit, he said, okay, you got it. And I embedded myself in the hospital for about a year. 
And okay, you embedded your, yourself in the hospital for a year. Let's take out some of the uh, what you found out. Actually, okay, what are you know you you just touched on this. I mean, the disparities between healthcare and the rich and poor. It all has to do with economics. Hospitals are big business, as you say in in the book. They're, they're supposed to be helping people, but at the same time, they're a business. And and how does that work? And how to and how did it work in the context of this hospital? Well, this hospital uh, barely makes a margin. In other words, in the nonprofit hospital world, which is what most hospitals are in the United States, they are 501c3s, um, they're, they're not allowed to make a profit. So they, they aim for what they call an operating surplus, which really just means more money than they had to spend. Um, in any other business, they'd call it a profit. Uh, these small community hospitals they are really happy if they can make about a 2% margin, just a little bit more than they spend. That gives them some money to improve equipment or hire a new doctor, that sort of thing. Big, giant systems are making 10%, 11%, in one case, 49% profit. Uh, and they do that by having economies of scale and market dominance. Um, some of these little hospitals are actually in their way. And so they are targeting these smaller hospitals as a way to consolidate and get bigger and bigger and bigger. So you now have entire regions of the country that are dominated by a particular hospital system, and that gives them pricing power, pricing power for drugs, devices, implants, uh, doctors, you name it. Um, And they can do battle with the insurance companies that they have contracts with to get higher reimbursements. So the, the small hospitals are getting squeezed really from both ends. They get squeezed by insurance companies and they get squeezed by big neighboring hospital systems. So what happens to patients given that, you know, that context? So what you're saying is these small hospitals, I, I think, are what? They're charging as much as the big hospitals, but they're... Clientele well, can't pay for they, it? They, yeah, go ahead. They often charge less than the big hospitals. Um, uh, uh, a lot of economic studies have shown that when you have this big consolidation, the bigger systems charge more and their care is no better and sometimes not as good as the smaller hospitals. So, but the smaller hospitals, so this give an example. So um, a knee replacement. Well, you get these devices from um, knee replacement manufacturers, and they could charge the big ProMedica system in Toledo, Ohio, about half of what they would charge the little hospital in Bryan, Ohio, for the elements that go into a knee replacement. So the little hospital has to pay more for the same device uh, than the big hospital system in Toledo pays, because the big hospital system in Toledo is doing, you know, a thousand or fifteen hundred knee replacements a year. The little hospital is only doing, let's say, a hundred, hundred and fifty knee replacements, and so they, the big uh, manufacturer, charges more to the small hospital. That so puts the them person, at a disadvantage. Yeah. Well. So then, what happens to the patient? And, because the patient, the probably the patient who has less resources, is going to stay in the little hospital in Ohio, they're not going to go to the big hospital in Toledo. It's too expensive and for a lot of other reasons. So they stay there and what? 
they have to bear the brunt of the cost or explain it in terms of what happens to the patient? Yeah, so, well, the patient will go in and and let's say that they get uh, equal care. So, So the outcome is just as good. So if the patient is uninsured or underinsured, they're going to be responsible for that. Um, the, the problem is the hospital is the person, not a person, but the institution that sort of takes it in the shorts here because they uh, are unable to charge the same prices that the big healthcare system can charge. The, the patient may pay less, actually, uh, at the smaller hospital as opposed to the big system, but the health insurance company is going to reimburse the hospital less. So if I'm insured and I have Blue Shield, I get a knee replacement at the little hospital, the insurance company might only reimburse you know, $7,000, just to pick a number out of thin air, to that little hospital, but they might have to reimburse $10,000 to the neighboring big health system hospital. So this permanently puts the little hospital at a disadvantage. They just can't make as much money. So then what happens, as you said in the beginning, what is it? Some, uh, uh, I forgot the, the number. 600 hospitals are, or these, this kind of hospital are going to maybe disappear. I mean, how can they keep going? I mean, that's just one example. You have lots of different kinds of examples oh, yeah. in the book. Well, they, how do well, they survive? The yeah. Well, they, they, sometimes they don't survive. They really have to struggle to survive, and, and that's, that's the issue. Is they perform really vital functions. We have large areas of the United States where there's only either one small hospital or no hospital because it's a rural area or it's a depressed area in some cases. Um, and so people don't have that sort of access to hospital care that they might want. A lot of hospitals that are closing they wind up becoming just sort of standalone emergency rooms, and then everybody has to drive 50 miles, 60 miles, 100 miles to a big hospital if they need any other kind of care. Uh, This really puts them at a disadvantage, and it's one of the uh, uh, factors that are fueling a crisis in rural and small-town health care. Well, I, I forgot who says it in your book, but I, I just copied this down. It was a, a quote, America is sick, getting sicker, and people are dying earlier with every passing year. So it seems to me, given the scenario that you just mentioned, that's what's going to happen in these rural areas. If something isn't done, is there a solution? Well, <clears throat> that is what is happening in rural areas. It's also happening in big urban areas. You know, it's interesting, the longer that I spent in Bryan, the more I realized that this uh, rural small town area has an awful lot in common with big inner city areas. Big inner city areas are often served by, by what are called safety net hospitals. These are hospitals that um, rely almost exclusively on Medicaid and Medicare reimbursement from the government. And they have some of the very same issues that these small community hospitals have uh, regarding reimbursement and so on. And outside of the walls of the hospital, some of the very same economic forces are, are hurting people. Uh, they've got minimum wage jobs. They've got poor educations. Um, they're having to work two or three jobs. There's a woman in the book, Valerie who works three jobs and gets four or five hours of sleep a night. 
some of these areas do not have, uh, and this is true of both inner city and rural areas, do not have good access to healthy food. Uh, so rates of obesity, diabetes go up. Um, you know, there's a concept that you may be familiar with as a sociologist um, called upstream and downstream. So a lot of things happen upstream, what are called the social determinants of health, that end up putting people in hospitals. And if you could address some of these upstream issues, like low wages and inequality, you could prevent a lot of people from going into the hospital in the first place. Um, you know, it's my argument in the book that the American economy is currently killing people. And so in the book, I follow a lot of people. Um, I, I talk about their lives and the lives they have to lead. Uh, one fellow, Keith, uh, was a warehouse worker who had diabetes. But because uh, insulin is so expensive in our country, he was rationing insulin. And that led to a cascade of health effects. And I asked the question in the book, what if we had just provided insulin to Keith at the very beginning? It would have cost us all some money, of course, but it would have saved us a lot of money in the long run. I think that's a very common problem. And as I mentioned earlier, as a social worker working in the kinds, I've worked in big city hospitals and also small hospitals, but that's a huge problem. And people rationing their medication, that happens all the time. I mean, that's a perfect example of, you know, taking, if you're supposed to take it every day, they take it every other day or skip a week, or I can give you all kinds of combinations, you know, and uh, and then, of course, yes, there's a cascade of just horrible things that, that happen. Um, but it, it seems to me it's getting worse, not better. Well, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it is I don't, I mean, that's my, yeah, it's like, okay, now we have COVID and we can see it. It's all out there, right? That, that's exactly the thing that yeah. COVID has done. Uh, you yeah. know, it's up to us to either accept the lessons that the pandemic is teaching us or not. And um, I hope we accept the lessons because they are very powerful lessons that we are learning right now. You know, COVID-19 can strike anybody, rich or poor, but it's killing poor people at, and working class people at a much higher rate than it's killing uh, wealthier people. And the reason is, is because working class people have to go to work. You know, we call all these people now, we call them essential workers and they're our heroes, but we just voted down um, a $15 minimum wage. The, the current minimum wage, federal minimum wage in this country is $7.50. People who work for uh, $14 an hour are actually making less money than people were making in 1969. We have really declared war on poor and working class people in this country, and they're dying because of it. The uh, mortality in the United States and life expectancy in the United States is actually declining. So we have the most expensive healthcare in the world. We spend more money by far than any of our peer countries, rich Western nations, and we have the worst outcomes. We are not doing it right. No, we're definitely not. I would agree with you, not doing it right. And I'm thinking back to some of these COVID examples, for instance, just plain living conditions, telling people who have, you know, 10 people who live in a two-bedroom apartment with one bathroom to 
make sure that they don't come in contact with one another if somebody has COVID or comes down with the symptoms. We create these impossible situations for people. <laughs> I mean, this is not like living in the suburbs with two and a half baths and four people living in one house. Um, so we, I mean, you can, obviously, there are so many more examples. Give us some more examples in your book of, of patients, because that's, that, that makes it real. I mean, you just gave yeah. the, the one. Yeah. So, here, so here's another example. There's a fellow by the name of uh, Mark Tingle that I, um, uh, that I talk about in the book and follow him a little bit. Uh, so Mark is uh, 50 years old. Looks like a really healthy guy. Um, but one of the problems was dental care. There is not a single dentist in Williams County, Ohio, that will take Medicaid for children. So children do not get adequate dental care. They don't go to dentists because they can't afford it. As a result, um, they get you know things like gum disease and so on. Well, what that does is it creates a... a pretty big payload of bacteria that ends up in the bloodstream of people and creates cardiovascular disease. And so people wind up having heart attacks and they end up in the hospital, you know, needing intensive care to save their lives from a heart attack. Um, You know, he's a contractor. He's a a fit, healthy guy, um, but he doesn't make a lot of money. And he can't afford to go every six months, do the teeth cleaning, do all that sort of stuff. And Medicaid isn't going to help him because nobody will take Medicaid. So he is going to wind up suffering the consequences, and sure enough, he does. How, you know, as a journalist and as a writer, and you were, you embedded yourself, you said, in this town for a year, what was that like for you? I mean, personally, you become close to people or you become, or do you have to keep a distance or, you know, how, do, how was that for you as, as, you know, writing this, this story, their stories? Well, I do become close to people. Um, you know, people know what I'm doing. Uh, I don't hide anything from anybody. I'm there to write a book and, and I, I hope that they'll be willing to share their stories with me. It's hard when I'm there in a place for such a long time uh, to not get close to people and care about people. And so I do. Uh, I keep uh, a good, I think, a good ethical line, but there's no doubt that I, I care about people. You know, my last book was called Glass House, and it was about the effect of private equity on companies that used to be the economic engines of, of their towns. And I spent uh, a year embedded inside that town for that book. And I'm still in touch, for example, with a couple of heroin addicts that um, I met there. They're recovering now, thank goodness, um, but they were heavy users at the time and wound up in jail. And I would go to their trials and we became close and I still keep in touch with them. I still keep in touch with people in the book, the hospital. I, I speak to my friend Keith probably once a week, once every 10 days, um, because you do, you get involved in their lives. And, and, um, and I think that's good. I think that's an important thing. Now you have to keep some boundaries because I am a journalist. Uh, I, I can't get, you know, I got to say the good and I got to say the bad, whatever the truth is, is what I'm going to say. Um, but you can't not care. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I mean, your work is so interesting and, and, and being uh, connecting with all of these people that, that 
you get involved with in writing your book. Um, how did, I mean, just as from now, I want to sort of get into the, your personal, how did you get in? I, what, you have a PhD from Michigan? Oh, no. <laughs> no. Um, oh, oh, you I know have, who I'm thinking I, of? There's another Brian who's, okay, yeah, no, you, okay. I, I, I have, uh, I, I, I got a degree from uh, the University of San Diego. I grew up in a small town in Ohio. It was actually the town uh, where Glass House is set. Um, and the big glass company there was Anchor Hawking Glass Company. Uh, no, I grew up in a small Ohio town, a big factory town, and um, left to, to go to college. Uh, I studied English literature and political science. To I always wanted to be a writer, uh, and I just sort of worked my way up through publications, writing for local publications, and then, then sort of you know climbing that that long ladder. Um, and finally, I ended up uh, writing books, and, and I do very much enjoy books because I can take much longer a period of time uh, to do them, and I, can, and I can really immerse myself in the story. Well, you say, you know, you that long road of just working your way up, but it's a it can be a pretty dismal road, can it? For most writers, I mean, you have to have a lot of talent. To, you get a lot of, re- maybe you didn't, I don't know, a lot of rejections, you know, along the way, but you keep on pushing, which you obviously have done, or maybe you didn't get rejected. I don't know, but. Oh, um, no, I got, no, no, I got, <laughs> I got my share of rejection, that's for sure. Um <laughs> It, well, it is. You know, you're, you're young, you start out, and, and what you hope for is that you run across uh, some good mentors who will take you under their wing a little bit and, you know, tell you how stupid you're being about certain things or here's how to make this, this better or here's how to do that better and, and, and give you a few pointers. And so, and that's what, that's what happened to me. I ran across uh, good people who were willing to pull me along on their coattails and I hope I can do the same for people that follow me. Well, it sounds like that's what you're doing. But m- mentoring does seem to it always does uh, sort of permeate to me when I, as I'm talking to people or guests on my show, people like yourself. There's always been a mentor or a lot of mentors who do help them along the way. So, uh, so what's your next book? Or well, uh, it. it, it, it it, I hope it is a story about a historical figure um, that was who was famous in his day, but is now not famous. Uh, and uh, it's a it really is a continuation of the themes I've been working on, uh, which has to do with how do we make the United States a bit of a fairer place to be. And he, that was what his mission was. He worked inside the government. Uh, during the New Deal, and I am hoping uh, that that story will also resonate with people, because we had a moment there during the New Deal and the post-war era where America moved toward much greater equality, and then it all fell apart starting about 1980, and we have been suffering the consequences of that post-Reagan era ever since then, and it's really coming home to roost right now. America's in trouble. America, in the book, I talk about um, sort of a larger sickness, the American sickness, and we are suffering through it right now. And you see symptoms of it all over the place uh, yeah. in, our, in our politics, uh, in our culture. Um, we're in a bad way. And it's my hope that through the hospital, reading the hospital, people will at least begin to recognize some of those ways. 
Well, I think they will. One minute left, and I recommend it's a great book. It really is. It's a really uh, packed with all kinds of things, but it's a fast read, and it's it's a I thank you for it. Uh, in the the hospital, life, death, and dollars in a small American town. Definitely recommend that. And I've been talking to Brian Alexander. Brian, give us a uh, website and or websites to go to. And I know you're going to be doing some public speaking at libraries, one in Boston, and I forgot where the other one was. Uh, right. This uh, month. Yeah. Last night was the book launch at the Mercantile Library in Cincinnati. People can go to the website. I was in conversation there with Beth Macy, another terrific writer, um, and um, that is, has been recorded. People can go look at that. On the 22nd, I'll be doing a presentation with Sam Canyonis, the author of another great book called Dreamland, and we will be uh, at the Boston uh, Public Library. I'll be in St. Louis. I'll be at the Wisconsin uh, Book Festival. Uh, that's coming up. People can go to my website, brianralexander.com, uh, click on the appearances page and see that information. Uh, they can also go to the Macmillan or St. Martin's websites. Uh, and I always encourage people to, of course, buy the book. Um, but if they have an opportunity, uh, choose one of your local booksellers. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It was really great talking to you. Thank you. I appreciate the time. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 